Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. A House panel holds its first hearing on the January 6th Capitol breach, calling it an attempt to overthrow the government. But top Republicans say this is more about politics than facts. President Biden asks countries for shared responsibility on migration at the Summit of the Americas. This despite the leaders of Mexico and other Latin American countries boycotting the event. Alaska is running a nonpartisan top four primary under a new election system. This year, 48 candidates are vying for the single open seat in the House. Voters in Michigan are suing Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. She allegedly allowed private money to influence the administration of the 2020 elections. After nearly a year of investigation, a House Select Committee has unveiled its interpretation of the January 6th Capitol breach. It's the first of several hearings. The committee took aim at former President Trump and his supporters. At the same time, Republican lawmakers argue this is more about politics than protecting democracy. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. Democratic Committee Chair Benny Thompson argued Thursday that former President Trump was at the center of a conspiracy to thwart American democracy and block the transfer of power. January 6th was the culmination of an attempted coup to overthrow the government. The violence was no accident. It represents Trump's last stand. The committee showed videotaped depositions from former senior Trump officials, including former Attorney General William Barr. I made it clear I did not agree with the idea of saying the election was stolen and putting out this stuff. You know, I didn't want to be a part of it. Also, live testimony from two witnesses. The first, Caroline Edwards, a U.S. Capitol police officer who was injured that day. What I saw was just a a war scene. It it was something like I had seen out of the movies. Filmmaker Nick Quested testified about his experience filming members of the Proud Boys and the crowd on January 6th. The committee presented 12 minutes of violent, previously unseen footage. Trump responded on social media, asking why the committee, quote, refuses to play any of the many positive witnesses and statements, refuses to talk of the election fraud and irregularities that took place. Republicans say the committee is not about fact-finding, but rather making a political display, pointing out that the Democrat-led committee picked a controversial former ABC News executive to put the presentation together. I'm not sure if they're using taxpayer money to hire a former ABC executive who took his time to withhold information about Epstein. Ahead of the hearing, two January 6th prisoners issued warnings to Americans. Stuart Rhodes, the founder of Oath Keepers, recorded a message obtained by the Epic Times. He said the committee's trying to say that January 6th was a planned conspiracy in order to stick it to Trump and destroy the MAGA movement. The Epic Times also received a recorded message from prisoner Jeremy Brown. He said, quote, Judge for yourself what rings true to you. A Reuters Ipsos poll released Thursday found that 55% of Republicans believe that left-wing protesters led the attack, and 58% believe most of the protesters were law-abiding. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. President Joe Biden emphasized shared responsibility during his second-day opening speech at the Summit of the Americas on Thursday. The president asked for cooperation between neighboring countries on issues of immigration and border security. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more. 
Despite the presidents of some Latin American countries boycotting the Summit of Americas, President Biden presented his vision for unifying the Western Hemisphere. There is no reason why the Western Hemisphere can't be the most forward-looking, most democratic, most prosperous, most peaceful, secure region in the world. We have unlimited potential. The president told attendees he expected the world to change greatly over the next decade. He says the challenge would be to shape outcomes to reflect democratic values in the region. After the United States declined to invite Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba, saying they didn't want dictators at the event, several countries' presidents boycotted the summit in protest. Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, announced he would not be attending, and leaders from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador followed suit. The president of Argentina, Alberto Fernandez, criticized the U.S. for the exclusions during his speech, saying, being the summit's host country does not grant the ability to impose the right of admission on the countries of the continent. Biden asked for cooperation between countries in improving supply chains and overseeing safe and orderly migration. Each one of our countries have been impacted by unprecedented migration, and I believe it's our shared responsibility to meet this challenge. Biden says a number of nations will join the U.S. in announcing a Los Angeles Declaration on Migration and Protection. This will bring our nations together around a transformative new approach to invest in the region and solutions that embrace stability, to increase opportunities for safe and orderly migration. He says addressing migration should be a shared responsibility. To crack down on criminals and human traffickers who prey on desperate people and coordinate specific concrete actions to secure our borders and resolve the shared challenges. President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris met with Caribbean leaders to hear each other out. I'm here not to tell you anything, but to hear what's on your minds. This is a partnership. It's not, I'm not, we're not here to dictate. Biden says he intends to intensify the relationship between the U.S. and the Caribbean. Uh, and I mean that sincerely. You're critically important to us in every way, and I hope we're important to you. Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro and Biden met for the first time in person. Bolsonaro was optimistic about the opportunities and shared interests between their respective countries. We are tremendously interested in drawing closer and closer ties with the United States. The summit is an opportunity for the U.S. to build influence and economic ties in Latin America and to counter China's growing presence in the region. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Between uncertainty and confusion, a migrant caravan paused in Mexico this week so its members could obtain temporary visas. They were then allowed to travel through the country and continue on towards the United States. Thousands arrived in a southern Mexican town Thursday. That's where they heard an announcement from Mexico's government. Visa concessions would be given for immigrants who are in the country illegally. The caravan is made up of Venezuelan, Cuban, and Central American citizens. It had departed a city about 20 miles further south on Monday, making its way north before the Thursday travel pause. Caravan members walked for several hours in the midst of intense heat and rain. One man from Venezuela said he was surprised the group was offered visas, but was suspicious of the move, noting that Mexican authorities frequently change policies. Another caravan member explained that the group was heading toward an immigration center to get the visa documents. That way, they could continue their trek north by bus. They had been told that the system had collapsed, 
but were also told that if they reach another town, they could still get the documentation. More than 5,000 members of the caravan say they plan to leave with or without documents and expect to board buses for the long journey to the U.S. border. The White House says it's dropping COVID-19 testing requirements for air travelers entering the country. Though it says this may change depending on the science and circulating variants. In recent days, travel industry groups have pressed the Biden administration to end the testing requirement. They described the rule as harmful and needless, and a number of other countries recently stopped requiring a negative test to enter. That includes Canada, which dropped its requirement for vaccinated people. The defense chiefs of the Chinese Communist regime and the United States held face-to-face talks for the first time. Both sides stood firm on their opposing views over Taiwan's right to rule itself. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Chinese Minister of National Defense General Wei Feng He met for nearly an hour, double the time initially planned for the meeting. Wei said the talks went smoothly when questioned by a journalist as he left the meeting. A Chinese Defense Ministry spokesman later said Wei reiterated Beijing's firm stance on Taiwan, which is that it is part of China. A U.S. statement issued after the talks says Austin called on the regime to refrain from further destabilizing actions on Taiwan. The pair met on the sidelines of the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore. It's a meeting that attracts top-level military officials, diplomats, and weapons makers from around the globe. Alaska is facing a string of election races unlike any other. It features a top-four primary and a ranked-choice voting general election. Here are the details. Voters in Alaska will have until the end of this week to vote in an unprecedented nonpartisan primary race. Under a new top four system, all candidates will appear on the same ballot with their affiliations listed next to their names. But only the top four runners will proceed to an August general election. That race will use ranked choice voting. A nonpartisan primary means there could be multiple candidates from the same party running in the general election. This could lead to interesting Republican-on-Republican and Democrat-on-Democrat races. It also means parties may not be able to replace a candidate should one withdraw. So far, some 100,000 ballots have been returned by mail. More than 160 communities also have access to on-site or early voting. This year, only one of Alaska's 60 seats in the Congress is up for grabs. This special election looks to fill the vacancy of Representative Don Young, who passed away in March of this year. A total of 48 candidates are vying for the seat. 16 of them are Republicans, 6 are Democrats, and 22 are running as nonpartisan or with undeclared affiliations. Top GOP runners include Sarah Louise Palin, a former Alaska governor and 2008 vice presidential candidate. Nick Begich, a businessman from a political family of prominent Democrats, former state lawmaker John Coghill, and Tara Sweeney, a co-chair of Young's campaign and former assistant secretary of the Interior. On the Democratic side, North Pole City Councilman Santa Claus and former legislator Mary Peltola have gained name recognition. And orthopedic surgeon Al Gross is the higher profile of the independents. 26 of the 48 candidates also filed to run in the regular House election, held on the same day as the special general election on August 16th. A separate set of regular general elections will be held in November. Michigan voters are suing Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson over 2020 election issues. She's accused of allowing Mark Zuckerberg to influence elections with tens of millions in donations. Let's zoom in on that. 
Voters in Michigan have taken their Democratic Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson to the State Court of Appeals. She's said to have violated the state's constitution and election laws during the 2020 elections. The lawsuit follows a recent lower court ruling where voters lack standing to sue Benson. The appeal states that Benson allowed the Michigan election process to be corrupted by an influx of private money selectively intended to promote voting among urban, Democrat-leaning voters, with a consequent dilution of the votes of rural, Republican-leaning voters. In the 2020 election cycle, billionaire Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chen managed to pump more than $400 million in donations into nonprofits. That money was nicknamed Zuckerbucks or Zuckbucks. Of it, $350 million went to the left-wing Center for Technology and Civic Life, or CTCL. The rest was given for the Center for Election Innovation and Research. These grants were expected to be spent on COVID-19-related personal protective equipment, but instead CTCL reportedly gave them to more than 2,500 election offices nationwide. It required that local officials use the money to promote mail-in voting or to deposit ballots in unattended ballot boxes. According to the filing, of the almost $17 million CTCL spent in Michigan, at least 84 percent was expressly earmarked for urban jurisdictions that historically cast ballots for Democrats by a wide margin over Republicans. Voters say there is evidence that Benson encouraged local election administrators to participate in the scheme. So she's accused of failing in her duty to oversee state elections. According to Ballotpedia, in 2020, Joe Biden won Michigan over Donald Trump by 50.6 to 47.8 percent, while in 2016, Trump was awarded a 47.5 percent to 47.3 percent victory over Hillary Clinton. Attorney Thor Hearn is a special counsel for the Thomas More Society. He explains that this case is not about relitigating the 2020 election. Rather, it is about making sure that these unfair and illegal activities cannot happen in any future election in Michigan. Benson's office declined to comment on the appeal. Disputed mail-in ballots are now allowed to be counted in a judge election in Pennsylvania. The election happened last year, and the ballots in question are undated. Three conservative justices dissented the ruling. The Supreme Court's order comes despite a state law. That law says ballots that are received on time but are missing a handwritten date on the envelope must be rejected. The Pennsylvania Republican Party also says undated mail-in ballots should not be counted. It's a tight race. In the election for judgeship, the Republican candidate David Ritter now has 71 more votes than Democrat Zachary Cohen. Ritter had tried to stop more ballots from being processed, citing state law, but a group of voters appealed. Then the case headed to the highest court. There, Justice Samuel Alito temporarily paused the appeal ruling. But late on June 9th, the Supreme Court canceled Justice Alito's order. And that let the counting continue. So the results of the election could change based on these undated ballots. Coming up, the debate over student loan forgiveness rages on with the Congressional Black Caucus and Senator Elizabeth Warren in favor. We hear from an expert about what costs would come with canceling the debt. And a $60 million deal to purchase Spanish language radio stations across the nation. It's facing pushback from a coalition of anti-communist Cuban exile groups. We'll have more for you in just a minute.
A gunman opened fire on his co-workers at a manufacturing plant in northern Maryland on Thursday. The shooter killed multiple people before being taken into custody after a shootout with police. The Washington County Sheriff did not identify the 23-year-old assailant, but told a news conference a state trooper stopped him as he was trying to flee. That the suspect had fled the scene prior to law enforcement arrival. The vehicle was encountered by the Maryland State Police on Mapleville Road, Route 66, in the area of Mount Etna Road. The suspect and the trooper exchanged fire. Both subjects were injured. The sheriff said they were both taken to a local hospital for treatment of gunshot wounds. He added the shooter used a semi-automatic handgun, but would not give details on a possible motive behind the attack. At this time, I can confirm that all the victims and the suspects were current employees of the uh, Columbia Machine Incorporated. A company spokesperson said they were cooperating with authorities on the investigation and declined to comment further. A federal aviation accident investigator will be sent to Hawaii to investigate a helicopter crash on a big island lava field. All six people on board were injured. The Bell 407 helicopter left Kona International Airport on a sightseeing tour. It crashed about 30 minutes later near the southernmost tip of the island. The lava field is more than a mile from the nearest road, so rescuers reached the crash site in two helicopters. Firefighters extricated three people, an 18-year-old woman, a 19-year-old woman, and a 23-year-old man who managed to walk to waiting medics. A 48-year-old man also walked from the crash site. The most seriously injured person was a 19-year-old woman who was flown to a hospital, and a seriously injured 54-year-old man, along with the four others, were taken by ambulance to the hospital. Hawaii County Mayor Mitch Roth said he was awaiting updates on their conditions and other information, including what might have caused the crash. Paradise Helicopters owner Calvin Dorn said in a statement, there were five passengers and one pilot on the tour. The company is cooperating with authorities, the statement said. Even though all six on board were injured, the crash could have been much worse. Photos provided by the fire department show the mangled helicopter on jagged rocks. The NTSB investigator will examine the wreckage after it's recovered. The Pentagon has changed its policy on HIV-positive service members. People who are HIV-positive used to be banned from joining the U.S. military as officers or deploying abroad, but according to a Defense Department memo this week, the new policy says that HIV-positive individuals who are asymptomatic and who have a confirmed, undetectable viral load will no longer face restrictions. They also cannot be discharged or separated from military service just because of their HIV status. According to the memo, the policy has been updated due to advances in the diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of the virus. The change in policy comes after a recent federal court decision that ruled that the Defense Department policies were unlawful. A cold case in Texas has been solved. The Texas Attorney General's office says a missing woman was found after more than 40 years. She was found by investigators from the Texas AG's Cold Case and Missing Persons Unit. She's been identified as Baby Holly, who went missing in the 80s as a young girl after her parents were murdered. She is now a 42-year-old Oklahoma resident. She made contact with her biological family through DNA testing. The Texas Attorney General's office said Baby Holly was left at a church in Arizona and was taken into their care. Members of the family who raised Holly are not suspects in the case. 
Next, we have an update on the debate over student loan forgiveness. Experts tell Bloomberg that simply giving borrowers 0% interest is a better solution than canceling the debt altogether. This while the Congressional Black Caucus reportedly met with Biden aides last Friday to discuss canceling a portion of student debt. Our next guest offers insight into the impact this would have on American consumers and businesses. Please welcome E.J. Antoni, who is a research fellow for regional economics at the Center for Data Analysis. Thank you for making the time, E.J. Happy to be here. Senator Elizabeth Warren just received a report saying that if $50,000 in student loans were canceled, about 30 million Americans would be free of their student loans. What impact would this have on inflation? Well, there's a few things to keep in mind here. One is that this isn't actually going to eliminate this debt, right? All it's going to do is transfer it from the people who currently hold it to taxpayers. So it's not as if this debt somehow miraculously disappears. Furthermore, because the debt is not actually going to be paid back, right? Because once it's transferred to the taxpayer, that means the government is just gonna continually issue new bonds and roll over the debt. That means the money is not going to be extinguished, which is what would normally happen when you repay a debt. And instead of the money supply shrinking, it would just stay right where it is. But it also adds elements of uncertainty, for example, because the government essentially keeps promising one thing and then doing another, or at least implying one thing and then doing another. And that just adds to a long list of elements of uncertainty that the government has created under this administration. And businesses hate uncertainty. Because of that, it makes it very difficult for businesses to plan for the future. It decreases long-run output which decreases supply, which puts further upward pressure on prices. Now, President Biden has already forgiven about $25 billion in student loans. How does this compare to general forgiveness? It's a good question. So general forgiveness is just talking about blanket money going out to anyone who has student loans. Sometimes that's given a certain cap, whether it's 10,000, 50,000, but it still goes out to just literally everyone who has these student loans. Whereas what the Biden administration recently did was a little more targeted. What they tried to do was say, okay, these schools we identified as somehow misleading students, whether or not that's true, that's that's how this was actually built. And therefore, what we're going to do is just assume the debt of these students so that they don't have to pay the money back. So why is it student loans that are being debated right now? What's the difference between paying for education versus paying for a laptop, for example, a credit card debt? Well, nothing really. In fact, this really smacks of just an attempt to get the base enthused in time for the midterm elections. So if you look at what's going on with the Democrat Party right now, there's really no enthusiasm because there's not really much positive news coming out in regards to the Biden administration. So in order to actually get the base enthused and out to vote in November, it looks like they are trying to do something that will inspire the young people who primarily vote for the Democrat party. And how would we categorize this? Like you mentioned, moving debt from one body to another body. Is it fair to transfer this debt to people that maybe don't have student loans, for example? No, not at all. Fairness has absolutely nothing to do with this whatsoever. And you can see that no matter how you look at this from any angle. If you look at it in terms of income, you're talking about forgiving debt for a group that makes substantially more than the average American, that makes substantially more than those who have lower levels of educational attainment. Just as one example, for those who didn't finish high school, those who who went to college make 125% more 
than those who never finished high school. So more than double. And yet it's the people who didn't finish high school who are going to have to pay the taxes to repay the debt that is being assumed by the government that was taken out by these students who knowingly took out this debt, by the way. So it really doesn't matter from what angle you look at it, whether you look at it from income, employment, et cetera. Fairness has absolutely nothing to do with the case for forgiving student loans. EJ and Tony at the Center for Data Analysis, thank you so much for shedding light on this. Thank you for having me. A new poll says veterans oppose President Biden's plan to forgive student loans. A veterans advocacy group says it would reduce the incentive to join the military and partake in a student loan forgiveness plan offered to veterans. The 1944 GI Bill helps veterans pay for higher education, and another law introduced in 2008 allows veterans who already finished school to apply money they would have used to help pay for their children's education instead. But the poll by veterans advocacy group Mission Roll Call shows that almost 80% of veterans do not think it's fair to share this privilege with those who did not sacrifice via military service. Veteran Daryl Owens of America's Warrior Partnership said via the Center Square that the plan to forgive student loans is a slap in the face to veterans and removes a big incentive to serve. He also says it could lead to less people entering the military and cause a national security crisis. Cuban exiles in Florida are pushing back against a recent deal by Democratic fundraisers to buy Spanish-language radio stations across the nation. They say they are concerned that this is an attempt to stifle anti-communist voices. Here are the details. A coalition of Cuban exile groups held a news conference at the Bay of Pigs Museum on Thursday in response to the takeover. They say that two of the stations facing takeover, Radio Mambi and WQBA, have been the voice of the Cuban exile community and the suffering of the Cuban people under communism. We're unified in our condemnation of human rights abuses in Cuba. And these two stations are iconic. They're, they're a central uh, hub of information from Cuba and about Cuba. And we're concerned because there's, there's a political and ideological background here, baggage, and we're concerned that, that this, these hubs of information be silenced or be marginalized. That's, that's really important to us. The Latino Media Network reached a $60 million deal last week to acquire 18 radio stations in 10 U.S. cities from Televisa Univision. The Latino Media Network is a startup founded by two political strategists who worked for former President Barack Obama in Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. The takeover is financed by Lake Star Finance, LLC, a company affiliated with Democratic Party megadonor George Soros. The coalition of Cuban Americans say they are exploring legal ways to contest the takeover. Our first action will be a letter of concern expressing the points of views we've, we've stated here. It'll be legally correct. And we're going to mobilize because the public space, mass media, is about what the discourse is in a community. And we're going to fight for the truth we know, that Cuba is a prison and that communism is a threat to the most essential elements of human dignity. The Federal Communications Commission still has to approve the deal. If it does, the Latino media network would take full ownership in late 2023. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Still to come, the U.S. average gas price now tops $5 per gallon, an all-time high. The spike is forcing drivers to make different choices about their trips. And do you want to take a vacation but fear slipping further into debt? We look at some ways you can plan your vacation and not go broke as consumers rely more on credit. Find out more right here on NTD News.
The average price Americans pay for gasoline is now hovering around $5 per gallon. With prices soaring on almost all fronts, it's becoming yet another drain on consumers' wallets. Here's more. Average gas prices in the U.S. this week are closing in on $5 per gallon, hitting an alarming all-time high. Well, uh, gas prices for the first time ever, the national average has hit the $5 gallon mark. Uh, a, a very furious increase from where we were just a couple of months ago when the national average at $4, so we surpassed that. According to the American Automobile Association, the average price was $4.97 per gallon Thursday, up a quarter in just the last week and nearly $2 more than a year ago. The highest rate is in California at $6.40 per gallon. Georgia has the lowest at $4.41. The spike is forcing car owners to drive less. A lot of other things I can't do because I have to pay for gas. You know what I'm saying? Less food, less playtime. You know what I'm saying? Because I got to put gas. I got to go to work, right? Yeah, we don't want to go too far. Like, we don't want to use the car too much because we're, it's, it's pointless to be wasting gas right now. The spike in pump prices is coupled with continued inflation. U.S. consumer prices in April were 8.3% higher than a year ago. That was only slightly better than in March, when inflation hit its highest since 1981. Uh, well, I usually um, put full tank probably like $60. Now it's like $100. It depends where I go, but yeah. Americans aren't the only ones paying more for gas. This week, gasoline prices in the U.K. also hit a record, reaching about $8.80 per gallon. Analysts say prices will keep rising until they're high enough that demand drops. And so it's just a, a matter of falling supply and rising demand. And that's pushed up the national average significantly. And it looks like we continue to see supplies decline. Gas price spikes have been helped along by refinery shutdowns. They were caused both by the pandemic and unexpected disasters, like a hurricane along the Gulf Coast of Texas and Louisiana. The buildings are sky high in New York City, and so are the rent prices. For the fourth consecutive month, the median cost of rent hits a record high for May. Average rent is about four grand a month. That's about 25% higher from a year ago. The median price for a two-bedroom is just shy of $5,000, and a three-bedroom a whopping 64 grand. Some factors that our landlords are pulling back on concessions, and of course, rising mortgage rates are keeping possible homebuyers renters instead. The vacancy rate is under 2%, which according to analysts is on the lower end compared to almost 12% during the pandemic. According to analysts, there isn't much financial relief in sight. New leasing this summer will continue to raise rates and should peak around August. Another day, another product shortage to tell you about, and this one may leave some of you feeling fiery. One of the world's largest producers in the Asian hot sauce market is anticipating a major shortage of sriracha. Hoifang Foods says severe weather conditions affected the quality of its chili peppers and their current inventory does not meet the demand. The company sources its peppers from various farms in California, New Mexico, and Mexico. The company announced it is not accepting new orders for its signature sriracha hot chili sauce placed before September, and orders already made before Labor Day will have to wait until the fall to be fulfilled. This pause in orders not only applies to Hui Fung's sriracha sauce, but also to its chili garlic and sambal aulek products. The Federal Reserve's monthly credit report released Tuesday found consumer credit surged last month, 
And with the summer travel season underway, experts say it's likely more people will tap into credit cards to afford vacations. But how can you avoid slipping further into debt without skipping the fun? Here are some tips. How are you paying for your summer vacation? A new report finds Americans are relying more on their credit cards for many expenses. Consumer credit surged by $38 billion in April, according to the Fed's monthly credit report. It comes amid the highest inflation in 40 years, with prices for gas, hotels, and plane tickets surging. In April alone, airfare spiked 18.6% over the previous month, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. These are things that really we have no control over. However, there are ways that we can save money. Financial expert Julie Almataveras says the first step to avoid getting deeper into credit card debt this summer is to create a vacation budget and actually stick with it. She recommends prioritizing activities on your trip. If you're spending three, four hundred dollars on extracurriculars, maybe those are the things that you want to reduce so that you can make up for the the expenses that we cannot control that definitely are, are going up in price. Another tip is to consider a group vacation to split those high prices with friends or family. And get creative when it comes to using reward credit cards. Look to see if you can use your points to pay for things. Also, realize that getting the best deal possible could mean traveling during off-peak times. Everybody wants to get out the house and of course we want to travel, but really being flexible is going to help you because there are places that are going to be more expensive. And finally, be realistic. If a vacation doesn't fit your finances this year, skip it and start saving for next year. Coming up, we ask, did Russian troops actually commit mass rape during the war in Ukraine? One ousted Ukrainian official admits she exaggerated such claims to get more military support. We'll have more for you right here on NTD News. The first road bridge between Russia and China officially opened today. The half-mile-long bridge connects the Russian city of Blagovyansk with the Chinese city of Heihe. During the opening ceremony, Russian and Chinese trucks crossed the bridge to a fanfare of colored smoke bombs. Officials from both countries participated in the ceremony via video link. One of Russia's deputy prime ministers and presidential envoy to the country's Far East region stressed that the bridge has a symbolic meaning of strengthening the friendship between Russia and China. Construction of the bridge started in 2016. Russian President Vladimir Putin paid tribute on Thursday to Tsar Peter the Great on the 350th anniversary of his birth. He drew a parallel between what he portrayed as their historic quests to win back Russian lands. Why did Peter the Great go there? He went there to take it back and strengthen it. That's what he was doing. Well, it seems it has also fallen to us to take back and strengthen territories. And if we take these basic values as fundamental to our existence, we will prevail in solving the issues we are facing. Putin made the statement when speaking at a meeting with young entrepreneurs in Moscow. On the anniversary of Peter the Great's birth, St. Petersburg residents did not blame Russia for worsening relations between Russia and Europe. It would be good if there were a window to Europe, but also a door to walk through from both sides. I think that the window to Europe is gradually closing. I hope it won't close fully. It's happening because everyone is against our country. They're angry. And it's not our fault that the window is closing. But we will be fine even without Europe. 
The window to Europe has always been closed, despite the fact that I have traveled around most of Europe. What can I say? Everything happening now in Ukraine is a nightmare and is horrific. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has killed thousands, displaced 13 million, and raised fears of a broader conflict between the United States and Russia, by far the world's biggest nuclear powers. Putin says the West wants to destroy Russia and that economic sanctions are like a declaration of economic war. Ukraine says it's fighting against an imperial-style land grab and that it will never accept Russian occupation. A former Ukrainian official is admitting that she exaggerated claims about Russian atrocities. She was recently ousted from her position for making unsubstantiated claims about mass rape by Russian troops. Here are the details. The Ukrainian parliament recently removed Lyudmila Denisova, who had served as a Ukrainian parliamentary commissioner for human rights. They said her claims on alleged sexual assaults by Russian troops couldn't be confirmed with evidence and distracted the global media from Ukraine's real needs. The official broke silence earlier this month. She admitted to a Ukrainian news outlet that she exaggerated the claims to convince the West to send more weapons to Ukraine. Denisova said, quote, I talked about terrible things in order to somehow push them to make the decisions that Ukraine and the Ukrainian people need. I conveyed everything that the applicants wanted to say to society and the world, that the enemies of the Russian Federation be punished. Indeed, maybe I exaggerated, but I tried to achieve the goal of convincing the world to provide weapons and pressure Russia. Denisova's false claims about mass rape by Russian soldiers received significant media attention in the U.S. One of her claims says that there have been 700 reports of sexual assault since the 1st of April. Another claim says that Russian soldiers have committed sexual assault against teenage girls. Since the start of the conflict, there have been concerns that both Russia and Ukraine are spreading misinformation about the war and on the ground events. A bakery in Kyiv is making a cake in honor of British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. That's for his support of Ukraine as it defends itself against Russia's invasion. The cafe started baking the tree last month, which it says was inspired by the English apple pie and Boris Johnson's hairstyle. The baker said the business was inspired by Johnson because he, quote, helps our country a lot. He said the cakes, which consist of vanilla custard, baked apples, and a ball of vanilla ice cream, almost always sell out. The U.K. has provided humanitarian, financial, and military aid to Ukraine since Russia's invasion started in February. Earlier this week, the U.K. announced it would send its first long-range missiles to Ukraine. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Just ahead, a showroom in Tuscany that displays memorabilia from movies attracts wealthy collectors from all over the world, many of whom come looking for a specialty item for their home. Stay tuned for more in just a minute. The wreck of a 17th century royal warship, the Gloucester, was uncovered off the east coast of Britain. It carried a future king of England before it sank. In 1682, King James II, then known as the Duke of York, managed to escape from his sinking ship. He became king three years later. The University of East Anglia is an academic partner in the shipwreck project. They say the event could have changed the course of history. In the glorious revolution of 1688, James II was ousted from power. Thus began the era of modern capitalism. 
The shipwreck was discovered in 2007 by diving brothers Julian and Lincoln Barnwell. For 15 years, it was kept secret to protect it from marauders. The ship is like a time capsule with many historical artifacts well-preserved on board. These include a glass vase bearing the crest of the Legg family. They were George Washington's ancestors. More pieces of the wreck are expected to be found on the seabed, including the ship's gold-leaf-covered stern. Two American tourists were fined for damaging Rome's famous Spanish Steps monument by pushing scooters down them. Police released images of the incident. A man and a woman are seen pushing scooters down the steps of the 18th century World Heritage Site early Friday local time. Police say the woman also deliberately threw her scooter down the steps three times. Police patrol stopped the tourists who were both in their late 20s. Police estimate they did more than $26,000 worth of damage to the steps. They were fined about $425 each. Police also say they're banned from visiting the historic city center for two days. If you're on the hunt for unique memorabilia, this showroom in Tuscany might have you covered. It attracts wealthy collectors from all over the world who come looking for oddities or world-famous movie props to add to their home decor. Entity's Andrew Thomas brings us a closer look. Tom Holland's Spider-Man Far From Home mask looks out at an extraordinary collection of memorabilia. In the center of Arezzo, near Florence, is the Theatro Mundi, a place filled to the brim with all kinds of collector's items. Our customers are people that want put some strange things in his home office, uh, yacht, airplane, uh, society, so um, they want have something really unique. Cableri left the legal profession to dedicate himself full-time to memorabilia. His clients are the rich and famous, who look to spend enormous sums of money to own objects that might have been the stuff of their childhood dreams. It's why the collection is private and can be visited only by appointment. Arezzo, this small city, doesn't have a, a big airport, so they <laughs> arrive in Florence, they take an, an helicopter to come in Arezzo, they stay here two, two hours, they buy and then they go. So it's very strange, uh, strange world. So. One of the most iconic items is the chopper bike from Easy Rider, originally owned by Dennis Hopper. Bianca Barbagli, Cableri's executive assistant, recalls her excitement when the bike first arrived. I grew up uh, as a teenager with this movie and it was so iconic and see, you know, we had to unpack in the street because it was so big, the truck that we couldn't, we couldn't get the truck in front of the gallery and so all the people stopped and looked at the bike. The gallery was considered worthy of the cover of National Geographic magazine some years ago. The publicity brought it to the center of attention and caught the eyes of many more collectors. Many tourists visit Arezzo to browse through the countless antique stores, but might be surprised to find it's home to some of the world's most iconic movie memorabilia. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Scientists have found fossilized bones of what may have been the largest carnivorous dinosaur in Europe. It lived around 125 million years ago. Paleontologists said Thursday they found the dinosaur skeleton on England's Isle of Wight, There were bones of the dinosaur's back, hips, tail, and some limb fragments, but no skull or teeth. Scientists say they estimate that the dinosaur exceeded 33 feet in length. Because of the incomplete nature of the remains, the researchers have not yet given it a scientific name. 
they say they believe it is not a member of any previously identified species. The researchers spotted the fossil remains on the surface along the coast. The island has become one of Europe's richest locations for dinosaur remains. NASA is assembling a team to study unidentified aerial phenomena, better known as UFOs. The agency says it wants to know more about phenomenon that can't be identified as aircraft or any known natural phenomena. It says it's interested because of national security and air safety and notes there's no evidence they are alien in nature. The study begins in early fall and is expected to take nine months. It will focus on identifying available data from the government, civilians, nonprofits, and companies, how best to collect future data, and how NASA can use it to move the scientific understanding of the phenomenon forward. The team's work will be independent from the work the Defense Department is doing on UAPs. And coming up, a photographer dedicates himself to capturing waves of the Pacific Ocean. He's taken photographs from inside some of the world's most dangerous and inaccessible waves. We'll have more for you in just a minute right here on NTD News. A photographer in Hawaii is known for his stunning images of ocean waves. They are taken from inside the barrels of some of the most powerful and dangerous waves on Earth. Let's take a look. My name is Clark Little, and I am a wave photographer from the North Shore of Oahu. When he was younger, Clark Little would surf the shore break waves, something very few people dared to do because of the inevitable impact with the sand. And he was doing it on some of the most treacherous waves in the world. Now he leaves his board at home and brings his waterproof camera. Shore break is so beautiful and scary at the same time. Um, like I said, I used to surf the shore break, so I'm kind of, it's my comfort zone. I, I like sand bottom. Uh, I think it has more aqua, beautiful colors. Little just released a new book that chronicles his last 15 years of capturing the beauty of waves. Called The Art of Waves, the book has more than 150 of his favorite images. The book came out about a month ago and Gosh, it's awesome. I'm so stoked on the whole, um, just how it turned out and, and, you know, getting all the support. That support includes testimonials from top athletes who surf these same waves. Kelly Slater, one of the most decorated athletes in professional surfing, got to know Little decades ago. He wrote the foreword to the new book. Clark's so connected with what he's looking at. It seems so natural to him. Uh, it just struck him one day to start capturing it. Big wave surfer Laird Hamilton says Little's photography gives him the chance to examine the ocean in a way that's impossible when surfing the chaotic and big seas that he likes to be in. Well, I, I mean, if when I look at Clark's books and I and I, I mean, I see the the beauty of the ocean, you know, and 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 uh, and the complexity. His books capture the things about the ocean that make us believe in, you know, higher powers. While Little usually shoots in Oahu, his new book also includes photos from the other Hawaiian islands, California, French Polynesia, Tonga, and the Galapagos Islands. While it may be scary looking, dragon fruit is actually not so frightening. It's a refreshing addition to a healthy diet. Let's learn more about this amazing tropical fruit. Here's Gina Marie, who brings us Strong Mind and Body. There's no denying it, dragon fruit looks a little odd. 
but fear not, this unusual looking fruit has a lot going for it. Since I discovered it in the tropics five years back, it's been one of my favorites. It's unique from every perspective. The fruit is covered in a thick reptilian looking skin tinged with a fiery looking pinkish color, but it hides underneath a delicious flavor. The possible benefits of dragon fruit include promoting the health of the heart and the brain. In addition, with a substantial 7 grams of fiber per cup, dragon fruit may also help with weight control. Dragon fruit not only offers healthy amounts of iron, but it also contains vitamin C, which helps with absorption. Finally, dragon fruit is rich in lycopene. Cleveland Clinic says it may reduce harmful LDL cholesterol while increasing desirable HDL. The real key to dragon fruit's health benefits may be its high level of antioxidant compounds. It's also been reported to improve cognitive function, so dragon fruit could be an excellent food to snack on if you are looking to sharpen your mental focus and clarity. Given its spiny appearance, it's not surprising that dragon fruit grows on a cactus. It's a good idea to experiment with ripening your dragon fruit. It tends to taste a bit sweeter if you leave it to ripen a tad longer. Dragon fruit should be firm to the touch but should give slightly when squeezed. The taste is a bit similar to pear and kiwi and may even have a strawberry note but the flavor is very mild. Easy to prepare, dragon fruit may be sliced in half. Of course you want to discard the scaly and edible skin and then use a spoon to scoop. You can also peel or slice your dragon fruit and enjoy it in fruit salads. It's good with other tropical delights such as kiwi fruit, pineapple, mangoes and star fruit. You can also stir dragon fruit into yogurt, use it to top oatmeal or blend it into your favorite smoothie or juice. Grab the popcorn, it's movie night. National Movie Night falls on the second Friday in June. It's a great time to put away the cell phones and enjoy a classic or something new with friends and family. Movies have been bringing people together for nearly 100 years, from the home theater with VCR and DVDs to movies now on demand. Big screens or small screens, there are plenty of viewing options. Drive-in movies are also making a comeback in some cities. Grab some of your favorite snacks, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.